Mexican invasion! Welcome to Invasion of the Weird. This is Agent H signing on. Today I'm joined with... The G-Man. Now today we're going to go into something most of you might know as Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind. Famous ufologists by the name of J. Allen Hynek had a six-tiered structure system showing the different levels of encounters you could have with unidentified flying objects. Right, so Possibly the first aliens. is like... So the lowest on the list would be nocturnal lights. So any unexplained lights that you saw in the night sky, which could often be chalked up to meteors, satellites, stars, you name it. But if there's an, un- an unidentified object in the night sky, that'd be the base level, nocturnal lights. Second, most credible would be daylight discs, any UFOs seen in the daytime. Third is radar visuals, so things that show up on military or civilian radar and leave a signature. And then we start getting into the close encounters. So close encounters of the first kind are visual sightings of an unidentified flying object within 500 feet, where you can make out physical features of the craft. The second kind would be a close encounter where there's physical evidence left behind by the craft visiting, being vegetation laid down, scorch marks on the earth, crop circles, you name it. As long as there's some physical effect that can be pointed to and said, hey, here's aliens. Crazy how nature do that. The third kind, which has a famous Steven Spielberg movie, the close encounter of the third kind is any where you can make out the occupants of said craft, be they humanoids, robots, other humans, as long as you make contact with the occupants. And then built on from there, after Heineck, is what we like to call encounters of the fourth kind. Any encounter where a subject is abducted and experimented on by the occupants of said craft. And we have that famous movie, The Fourth Kind, that takes place in Nome, Alaska, based off of the idea of there being these kind of close encounters. Well, I wouldn't say it's just an idea. There's been plenty of rather certifiable abduction stories. Yeah, and today I was hoping we'd go into... I've got myself quite a mm. list of what I feel are some of the most credible instances of alien abductions where either there is physical evidence or witnesses something happened that makes these stand out what do you know of the betty and barney hill case uh i know a little bit about them they were what what was the years so i've got september of 1961 Okay, so that's already a good start to spot, talk about the victims themselves. So 61, nobody's going to believe a lot of what they say anyway due to them being an interracial couple, and that was not kosher at the time. They are a married interracial couple. Barney is an African-American. Betty is Caucasian. Just, I don't think it tints it too much. It's just interesting to point out that at this time in American history, 
has happened to these folks. Right, and I think that the only bearing that little nugget of knowledge goes with is that a lot of people aren't going to believe your alien story, your abduction story. They're especially not going to agree with you at that point in time when your social status was unacceptable. So, September of 1961, Betty and Barney Hill are driving through the winding roads of the White Mountains in New Hampshire in a place called Indian Head as a UFO seems to be following them from behind. An instant later, after thinking to themselves, is this thing following us, the hills are 35 miles down the road, missing two hours of time. Betty's dress is ripped, and Barney's leather shoes are scuffed beyond repair. So... When they get back to town, they tell their family, who then tells them to go to the Air Force and make a report. I actually saw the official Air Force report while looking into this. And interestingly enough, the Air Force does show that there is an unidentified object on radar at the same time, in the same place, the Hills claimed. But... The signature was so weak on screen that the Air Force chalked it up to being some sort of a malfunction. Uh, Another thing to note is that the commanding officer that took down the report writes in the notes at the bottom of the seriousness and sincerity of Barney's testimony of seeing this object chase them down the road. So what happens next is... Over the next couple of days, Betty starts having nightmares about what had happened, and Barney starts exhibiting serious symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. He starts getting bleeding ulcers. He has to take a leave of absence from work. He's a total wreck, completely shell-shocked. So they go in for psychological help, and they end up doing hypnotic regression, where each one of them comes up, I wouldn't say comes up, but has accounts of being taken from the road, drugged onto a spaceship, and experimented on by the occupants of said spaceship. Under hypnosis, they saw a ship and its passengers. The leader reminded Barney of, he considered like a friendly Irishman, but the rest of the crew reminded him of Nazis, German Nazis as he put it, because of their shiny black military-esque uniforms that they were wearing. Uh, They tried to run, but the aliens were in the road and took them. They tore Betty's dress when she tried to flee into the woods, and they drug Barney. He He could remember the sensation of being drugged across the rocky road, which scuffed his shoes so badly. I'm just going to play a quick link of the actual audio from Barney Hill under hypnotic regression seeing the aliens for the first time at the ship and him feeling like they're telling him not to go anywhere. Keep looking. 
Just keep looking and stay there. And just keep looking. Just keep looking. Did you your very tired? Oh, I gotta pull these binoculars away from my eyes. Because if I don't, I'll just keep staying there. Did you hear him tell you this? Oh, no. He didn't say it. You felt he said it. Right? I know. You know he Just there. Yeah. Just stay there. He saved to me. All right. I'll take you by your head. Just All right. Pull All right. the doctor away. God, give me his strength. All right. That's just a small clip of what Barney has happened in his first session. That's pulled from a 40-minute segment. And I'll, I'll put the link to the full video, well, the full audio on our Instagram. The thing that shocks me about Barney's regression is how genuinely terrified he is in certain portions of it. Yeah, I I completely agree, and that's... One of the things that the airman that took the uh, report from them had said is that Barney was so genuine about what he said that it's believable. And just based on the audio clip where he's screaming that they gotta they gotta get out of there, Betty, and that God needs to give him strength to get through this. Yeah, and that, this is even. They gave that report before having these. So uh, one thing that you only get if you listen to the full clip is that the psychologist giving this regression basically reburies these memories when he goes to bring him out of hypnosis. And he says, you will not remember this until the next time we have a session. And when Barney comes back too, he's like, whoa, what happened this time? I remember wanting a cigarette. Can I still have a cigarette? But I got another clip I'm going to play in a bit. And if that one was rough for you, listener discretion advised, the next one is going to be a little bit of Betty followed by a little bit of Barney. They said that each of them was taken into different observation rooms where the entities thoroughly examined their ears, eyes, mouths, uh, Barney remembers them sticking their fingers into his mouth and feeling around everything in there. Seriously examining their whole skeletal structure. They took hair samples, skin samples, swabs, and they needled and prodded at both Betty and Barney. And this next clip is Betty remembering getting a giant needle shoved into her belly button. Daddy, take my baby, put my baby. 
Just sheer terror. The thing... So this is the first major abduction case. And if you're a believer, it sets the precedent for what to expect from interactions with what these folks saw, which would later be described as the greys. And if you're a skeptic, you see a genre that they start. I lean towards more of the sincerity. I don't know. What's, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think it's hard to make a decision on how I want to tell others about this. Because on one hand, there's no denying in my own head and heart that Barney and Betty went through that traumatic experience. However, there are other stories out there that say that maybe a different race of aliens or different or a different abduction went completely differently, but they were still examined and things like that. So I don't I don't want to put fear into the listener's head when I say that a close encounter isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially because aliens confirmed thanks Tom DeLong. Thanks Tom DeLong. One of the reasons I really did want to do a fourth kind episode. One was a listener suggestion. Shout out to Ken from New York. But the other reason is because of what has come out confirmed by the U.S. government. It was off-world vehicles, not made of this earth, in the hands of the U.S. government. And that's one reason that makes me think it's so relative. Uh, One person reached out and said to us on the Instagram that what does it matter if we have these off-world vehicles, if they're leaving everyone alone and not messing with people, we won't be in their business and they won't be in our business. So I, I just, I simply turned around and pointed out if these abduction cases have any validity, they're not minding it's, their own business. It's been since 1961 that that argument could have been used. Right, and I don't know. So, I think it does matter a lot, and not in the sense of, well, let's mind our business and let them mind theirs, because with the abductions, yes, I wouldn't say that they're minding their own business if they're harming Betty and Barney, or our boys in Mississippi, or Alaska, We've got New Mexico. Yeah, New Mexico, Arizona, New York. We've got quite a few to go into today. But I think it's important to point out that the experience with them, I got one more thing to say about Betty and Barney. The experience with them wasn't wholly awful. Uh, On Betty's part, after the examination, she asked one of them some questions about the universe. She asked where they were from specifically and was shown a star chart. These creatures were said to be from the Zeta Reticuli system, and they showed Betty a map, allegedly a map, that was how they traversed the universe to get between here and there. One thing that leads credence to Betty in this case is that 
some of the stars pointed out on our map were not discovered by us until years later. Some skeptics would say that that was pure luck. There was always going to be a star there because da 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 da. But the chances of that being right are so infinitesimally small. I'm not saying they're not there. It just is one of those things that leads credence to the Betty and Barney abduction story. Plus, I mean, if the Gov does have their uh, off-world vehicles, how much longer until we figure out how they work and, you know, we start jetsoning it or, you know, lo and behold, we start to make our own real travel into the universe. We've, we've made very small trips to, say, the moon or to Mars, but no real journeys. Well, we, we have mentioned the Lazar story a couple times in a few of these podcasts. We haven't done our own podcast about this right. Lazar, but there's plenty out there. Interestingly enough, the documents that he was given in his briefing also mentioned the Zeta Reticuli system for an origin for the crafts that they were working on. Just a little tidbit to throw out there is that the state of New Hampshire has a physical plaque out there at Indian Head now showing where Betty and Barney were abducted. It's a historic landmark. You can go out and visit. That's true. I, I did see that. Isn't it amazing how we have, like, landmarks to be like, hey, this is somewhere, somewhere some weird shit happened? Yeah. We've got the Betty and Barney one. Mothman's got his own statue, but we'll talk about him another day. Strange things happen in nowhere. Facts. Up to courage. Tower of the dog. One, one thing I just want to point out before we go into the rest of the abductions is there's threads. There are threads that connect all of them. The threads seem to be missing time and then suppressed memories. One thing that I look for to distinguish some more plausible abduction cases from, say, sleep paralysis cases is the fact that you're not in your bed to start with, and then you have missing time. Other factors change around what has happened to you. And speaking of that, I want to go into our next case. This takes place November 5th, 1975 to a, at the time, 22-year-old logger by the name of Travis Walton. Do you know anything about Mr. Walton? You know, I actually do. Uh, Travis Walton is a, is a humble man. Spent a lot of time logging, then went to the paper business, and, you know, he had his close encounter, which I'll let you get into. And at the end of the day... Him and all of his crew that witnessed the abduction were given polygraphs, all that said that they weren't lying, until many years later on a canceled Fox TV game show called Moment of Truth, somehow his polygraph came up as lying then. Yeah, I'm not going to get into the Moment of Truth show because I, I don't know how much stock I put into game shows like that. I think that show was literally made just to ruin people's lives. There's evidence of it. Yeah. That's the reason it got canceled. Long story short, there's a movie called Fire in the Sky that is a dramatization of the Travis Walton story. 
So, Herbert's. Can I stop you for a second? Go for it. So I I know I know the story, and I just want a little bit of clarification here. So I want to say that Travis's perspective of this story would be a close encounter of the fourth kind, correct? Yes, Travis. And his friends would probably be of the second? Yes, I believe. Residual evidence? Yes. So they would have, they would have had a close encounter the second time because there was physical evidence. Later, the physical evidence appears in the woods where this disc was seen, the one that took uh, Travis. Go ahead and tell the story. And then... the, the trees, but only facing towards where the disc was, the wood grew 80 times the rate it would naturally. Right. And so there's some physical there. It might be f- the first kind because at the time, later down the road, physical evidence disappeared. So second t- kind is totally fair. They didn't see any occupants. So second or first. But Travis's story definitely encountered the fourth kind. So him and his buddy loggers have been working in Herbert, Arizona, near Snowflake, Arizona, clearing land where they're driving down the road in a pickup and they see a floating golden disc in the woods there right off the road. Travis apparently being the bravest of the bunch. Or stupidest. You know, this is literally the scene from Finding Nemo with the little squid and Nemo and the other two fish and they see a boat out there and they go, yo, dude, I'm going to touch the butt. And Travis is Nemo and he goes out there and he touches... I'm starting to think that Finding Nemo is just fire in the sky for kids. He goes missing. He gets abducted. Everyone's like, oh, what happened to your kid? You gotta get it back. A week later, they finally get him. Yeah. So Travis goes up to it, and his buddies, his co-workers, see it shoot out a bluish beam of light, smack Travis straight in the chest, that then throws him ten feet back, into the woods. Being the great friends and noble men that they were, do you know what their uh, next step was? I'm going to assume they pissed themselves and left. They pissed themselves and left. They didn't literally piss themselves, but they all got the fuck out of there. Allegedly, they didn't. Allegedly, they did not piss themselves. But they hightailed and ran. One of the men, feeling guilty... For leaving Travis, uh, presumably with a laser hole in his chest in the middle of the woods, convinces the other guys to go back for him and pick him up. When they get back, the disc is gone. Travis is nowhere to be found. So they go into work. And the foreman is like, hey man, where is Travis? And they all say, oh, you, you know... Uh, there was a UFO in the woods that shot him with a laser, and he's gone now. Rightfully so, the sheriff's office gets involved, and they all assume that uh, these five other men murdered Travis in the woods and left him somewhere. So they're all being questioned and held under the presumption that they murdered their friend, and they're all giving these stories about Travis going missing in a UFO encounter. Five days later, 
Travis Walton shows back up, just walking down the highway, like not knowing what day it is, complete missing time. He thinks it's not too long after the first encounter. Uh, be like, hey, you see that crazy uh, flying saucer thing? Well, gotta go to work. Well, well, gotta go to work. So that's November 10th. It's been five days. Travis goes in for regression also. He's questioned by the police. Now that Travis is back, his buddies are, you know, exonerated from his murder because he's obviously alive. Habeas corpus. Body has appeared and it's walking. Y'all can go back to work. But that's when it starts getting kind of crazy. Not only did all of these witnesses see UFO and then Travis goes missing and then the sheriff also knows Travis is missing and a murder investigation goes underway. Travis describes, similarly to the Betty and Barney Hill case, being taken aboard by gray aliens. This time, different from the Hill case, they weren't in shiny black uniforms. They were in orange uniforms. And they are poking and prodding at Travis, taking samples. And Travis will not go down without a fight. He fights back, busts off the table, tries to escape. He runs into what he thinks is another human being, but in like a breathing apparatus helmet. Who then takes him out into a hangar full of other spaceships, where he runs into three more human-esque humanoids. And I say human-esque because, for all intents and purposes, these are the perfect genetic specimens that the Third Reich wanted. Ah, yes, this is what we've been working for! Yeah, this is like Wolfenstein 3DS type shit. That's terrifying. Yeah. He notices that all three of them, two males and a female, and now he notices how weirdly handsome the dude that grabbed him also is. Blonde, blue-eyed, Perfect, flawless skin, perfect features, chiseled, muscular specimens. It's kind of strange that he's in a ship, trying to figure out what's going on, exploring the ship. Trying and going, to gosh, these people are so pretty. No pimples? Wow. Yeah, blemishless. Like, what is your skincare routine? Activia. Just kidding, I think that's the yogurt that helps you poop. <laughs> Maybe she's Bjorn with it. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's Maybelline, maybe it's a spaceship. Anyways, the three uh, supermodels, which I get makes this story weird, but it's weird to start with. Then go shush, 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 shush. Put him back down and then put a... He described it as like a plastic-like mask over his face, which promptly knocks him back out. He blacks back out and wakes up walking down the road where he was found that five days later. And as you mentioned, these folks all went under a lie detector test, which in the first round showed as either passing or inconclusive. The psychologist that gave them was convinced that these guys were making up the UFO story to cover their butt, but could not rationalized to himself how the other men who weren't Travis 
we're going along with the story. And we're adamant that this is what happened. Yeah, they didn't have any time to, you know, line up their story. So I've got a couple more, but you know, Jimmy, I think I think I'd like to get into yours next. I've got because I think chronologically yours might go next in the timeline. I've got a singular story for you that matches up with, you know, there's an abduction allegedly. Um, they go to the police about it, and they are put on the polygraph, and they pass, leading some of the sheriff's department to believe them as well. Now, could you remind me one more time when Travis's abduction was? Travis's abduction was November 5th, 1975. Okay, so mine took place just before, on October 11th of 1973. So, in the area of, I believe it's pronounced Pascagoula, Mississippi, there are two men named Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker Jr., who were just out fishing, day out with the boys. You know how it be. Was it a Saturday? Because uh, we all know Saturday is for the boys. Damn straight. Uh, <laughs> and yes, it was on a Saturday. So Saturday's for the boys. So, much like the Betty and Barney Hill case, there is a historical marker for where the abduction allegedly took place. And it is, and it calls it one of the best documented cases of alien abduction. And here's the story. So, the afternoon of that Saturday, the two men rush into the sheriff's office, yelling and screaming and hooting and hollering that they had been abducted by the aliens. And unexplicably, they each had a puncture wound in one arm from where they said they were poked and prodded at. That's spooky. Not only is this an encounter of the fourth kind, but to the sheriffs, this would be an encounter of the second kind because there's physical evidence left by the entities. Correct. And so the police tried to catch them in their lies because they didn't believe them at first, and they threw them in a polygraph test. And they both passed. And here's what they said happened. They'd gone fishing after work because they were, uh, they worked at the shipyard there. And I believe Hickson was the foreman there. And they were just, you know, broing down. And Hickson said, I was just getting ready to get some more bait. And then I heard this kind of zipping sound and I looked up and saw blue flashing light. Calvin turned around too. We saw a 30 foot long object with a little dome on top. As it hovered above the ground, three small creatures emerged, also hovering. Suddenly the men were paralyzed, and the creatures grabbed them with pincer-type claws and pulled them toward the object. Parker had described it as floating inside. And while they were being subjected to the physical examination, Hickson described a mechanism that looked like a giant eye with a constant whirring and buzzing sound. And then they don't remember. They do, they were just dropped off right back in the dark Delta where they started. Hickson found Parker standing up, arms raised to the sky and screaming. They ran for help, went to the sheriff's office and said, yo, 
We were fucking abducted by aliens. You know what I think of every time I hear an abduction story? Doesn't this sound exactly like how, say, a lion must feel when we shoot him with a trank dart? And then examine them, tag them, and throw them back out to the wild? We physically do this exact same thing to creatures all over the planet to better understand their biology. And I just imagine like a chimpanzee we did this to going back to the chimp colony, the troop, and be like, giant hairless chimp things took me, put a jabber in my butt, and then like I passed out, I woke up back here. Shit's crazy. And all the other chimps were like, yeah, whatever. Eat a banana. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a good way to rationalize it. I think it's hilarious that in this specific story, it was not Grays, but instead the crab people from South Park. The crab people from South Park. They look alike crabs. And talk alike people. But they talk alike people. Now, I don't want to say that it's hilarious in the sense that, oh, yeah, it's funny, you got abducted. Like, I'm so- I am sorry. I-, I cannot apologize to the men themselves. I believe Hickson passed away in 2011. But it's funny in an odd way, not in a ha-ha way. I don't know how many people know about this one. I would say a good number may, but a good number may not. Have you ever heard of the Lyndon Napolitano case in Manhattan, New York, November 30th of 1989? Um, it rings a bell. I'm not sure. Is that the one that includes the uh, UN guards? It does. So Okay, go ahead. The thing that really sets this case apart from other cases, for me, as you can't chalk it up to sleep paralysis, or anything else of the sort, is that there are multiple eyewitnesses to this event. Linda Napolitano says she, and just like you could say with a lot of sleep paralysis cases, wakes up in her room, there's three alien greys around her, they float her out her window up into a spaceship, they all float off, and she gets poked and prodded and has something embedded in her nasal cavity. Kicker is, first, two New York City police officers who are on guard duty for a very high-ranking UN member, who we will get into later, who off the record, two famous ufologists, Bud Hopkins, who was helping out in the Palatano at the time, also confirmed that he was a witness to this, saw spaceship, her fly out her window, three aliens fly with her up into the ship. And I, 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 I'm going to stop you just for a second, but I, I just remember this small detail. That these policemen felt so guilty about not doing a damn thing about it. And they wanted to report to somebody else, like, hey, this fucking happened. Yeah, they felt helpless. They felt helpless. Their job is to literally serve and protect. And they could do neither as they watched a helpless woman be kidnapped by things from beyond the stars. Well, how are you going to stop something that's just floating away? You can't. You can't. You can shoot her. I mean, honestly, if I'm the one floating out a window, I kind of get popped from the ground, you know? I don't. I don't. 
I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to take that bullet for, the, for humanity and come back and tell them exactly what happened. And you will all call me a crazy man for it. So the UN official was Javier Perez de Cuellar. I hope I'm saying that right. It's spelled C-U-E-L-L-A-R. And I'm hoping that's my Spanish name is right on that one. But he was quoted by the guards as being visibly shaken by witnessing it with them. Because of course he would be. And then later, off the record, he confirmed that he had also seen it. Allegedly. Off the record, of course. Off the record. Because, you know, you got your big lofty political career to worry about. And you don't want to be thrown under the bus. So Linda was quoted saying, I'm standing up on nothing. And they take me out all the way up. Way above the building. Oh, I hope I don't fall. The UFO opens up. I'm almost like a clam. And then I'm inside. I see benches, similar to regular benches. And they bring me down a hallway. Doors open up like sliding doors. Inside are all these lights and buttons and a big, long table. She's then put on the table and experimented on. Later, another witness, other than the UN official and the guards, comes forward by the name of Janet Kimball. But she just assumed they were making a movie. I'm like, oh, cool, There's they're making some Hollywood film right now. Isn't that cool? Special effects crazy these days. Look out, Tom Cruise. Look out, Tom Cruise. Linda does her own stunts. So, as another piece of evidence in this, Linda says that she has a, an implant put her in her nose and then later taken out. She goes to a nose and throat specialist who takes x-rays, and we can throw the x-rays up on Instagram. There shows a huge cartilage buildup where she said the implant would have been and is the exact reaction your body would have had to having a foreign object embedded in the skin there. You know, I just, I just want to know, and please, 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 any listeners out there that are just skeptics, send us a message and try to explain to me how these people who had no connection to one another have this same story. I've got two more cases I want to get through. One of them is an abduction case, and one of them isn't an abduction case yet. But I'm certain has all the hallmarks that we discussed earlier and may become one down the road, much like the next story we're getting into. So this is the story of Terry Lovelace. It takes place two times, 1977, 2012. Mr. Lovelace, active duty Air Force medic, he's out camping with his buddies, and they see a giant, and I mean giant, triangular-shaped UFO while they're out there. One of them signals the spaceship with their flashlight, and it then flashes back down a light blue light, and that's the end of their experience. Like, that's crazy. We saw a UFO go about their daily lives. Terry goes on to leave the Air Force, become a prosecuting attorney, and eventually becomes the assistant attorney general of the American Samoas. A highly, highly qualified guy. Highly respected. Very, very high credentials, obviously. In 2012, he goes in because he has what he described as numbing in his leg. And they go and they take an x-ray of his leg. 
The doctor's feeling around, and he goes, right here. Right here is where it should be. Terry goes, what? What should be there? The doctor replies, some sort of an entry wound should be here. He has a metal implant embedded in his leg without any visible evidence of how it physically could have gotten in there. There's no scarring, nothing. Terry then goes in to have the similar regression to a lot of what these cases have where he finds that he was also experimented on by aliens. Uh, if you want to read his account, Terry wrote a book called uh, Incident at Devil's Den. And it's just another one of those cases where there's physical evidence left over. Highly respected individual. I think super credible. And the last one I want to get into is from... This is the unconfirmed yes. alien abduction story. This is unconfirmed as an alien abduction, but it has all the hallmarks that these other cases have. And much like Mr. Lovelace, I would not be surprised if years from now, this fella uncovers some repressed memory of his week missing. So in 2018, February of 2018, a Toronto firefighter is skiing with his family and his co-workers on a ski trip in New York State. He goes missing off the mountain. His phone, wallet, passport, all left in the room. He shows up five days later lost, wandering around Los Angeles, California in his full ski attire. Like he was picked up and dropped off at the wrong location. The official theory for how Danny Philippidus got there was that he hit his head so hard on the kitty hill that he walked that he then for a week no, didn't walk for a week, because that would be amazing if you walk from New York to Los Angeles. He uh, concussed, got onto a long-haul trucker's truck, and then was like, hey, give me a ride anywhere. And the trucker goes, okay, I'm going to take you to the end of the line. He says his only recollection of being in there was feeling like he was inside of a vehicle. He assumes that he got into a truck. There's a lot of assumptions that he makes. He also assumes that he was sick in Utah at some point. And he's like, I've never been to Utah. And then just wakes up in Los Angeles. In his ski gear. In his ski gear. You would think that in this week of being in a semi-truck, you're like, I don't know. Take off your ski gear. Take off your fucking ski gear. Yeah. It's hot in Los Angeles compared to Toronto. He finds... His credit card in his pocket and eventually buys an iPhone in Los Angeles and then can't remember anybody's phone numbers. Goes in. Eventually, while he's at the airport trying to figure out how to get home, remembers his wife's number, calls them, and they go, what the fuck are you doing? Go to the police. To this day, they have no idea who the trucker was. He has no idea how he got there. Nobody's got any idea how he got there. But the running theory is that he just showed up, concussed out of his mind, severe brain damage, hitchhiked 
to California. He's now back at work, perfectly healthy, perfectly fine, but has virtually no recollection of what happened. Nobody has any idea what happened. He just had experienced missing time and then was physically displaced. Aliens. Even if the going theory, which I think is ridiculous, is it more ridiculous than aliens from outer space picking them up and dropping them off? Maybe, maybe not. But regardless, this is an abduction case. Because either he is abducted by random trucker dude, or all those missing memories are in line with all the other missing memories that we have in this. Well, you know, missing trucker dude is not going to uh, come out of the woodwork, because if missing trucker dude did abduct a uh, Toronto man, he's got a lot of explaining to do. Is it uh, William Shatner space trucking? It might be. With that, let's uh, let's call it an episode. <laughs> yeah, we'll go ahead and call that an episode. I'm Agent H. And I'm the G-Man. Thank you so much for listening. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram. Uh, if you want to leave a message to the show, go to anchor.fm slash invasion of the weird, and your voice messages will be featured on the show. Again, shout out to Ken from New York for the idea for this episode. Again, this is Agent H, Invasion of the Weird, signing off.